Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now, the coronavirus crisis will shrink London's economy by 44 billion pounds, and a full rebound could take until summer 2022. Now, that's a warning today in a new report by GLA Economics Unit at City Hall. With culture, leisure, retail, and hospitality all hard hit by lockdowns and social distancing measures, the report also says 2021 could see a 4.5% drop in the number of jobs in the capital. Well, I'm very pleased to be uh, joining or joined by the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who joins us from the historic Karisark in Greenwich, the world's only surviving tea clipper mayor, and I think built in 1896. And I don't know whether it goes to uh, the kind of deals that you think London and the UK should try and have post-Brexit, but how damaging would a no-deal Brexit be for the city of London? And good morning. Good morning. It's great to join you again. Look, uh, we as a country, 80% of our economy is in the professional services. We're world leaders in finance, in, in law, in uh, tech, in creative industries. And unfortunately, the current deal being negotiated by the government uh, fails to address the concerns that these industries have in relation to continuing to do business with our biggest trading partner, partner the European Union. As it is, it appears even the flimsy deal the government's negotiating may not go, get over the line. So we are very concerned about the possibility of a no-deal Brexit. That means not having a deal with our biggest trading partner or a deal that doesn't reflect our economy. And uh, the irony, of course, is, is the USA now has a president who's putting the USA back on the world stage and we, the UK, uh, may become a very lonely country in the future. So what's the best hope for financial services in this very late stage in Brexit talks? Well, at the moment, it appears that a number of our sectors uh, that were hoping for uh, a good deal with the EU aren't included. Uh, and so even if a deal is reached with the European Union this week, and we hope one is, the problem is uh, for our professional services, finance, uh, legal, tech, creative industries, they will have less favourable access to the single market than they had as members of the EU or during this transition period. And that's why it's really important that the UK government uh, understands the importance of uh, issues like equivalence, financial passporting, the issue of attracting talent to London, and the fact that our ecosystem relies upon people as well as capital and services moving from London to other parts of the European Union. If we go back into a lockdown that looks more like Tier 3 in London, and if we have a no-deal Brexit, would that be the perfect storm? What would job losses actually look like in that scenario? Well, London is very similar to other global cities around the world, like New York. We've suffered hugely because of the reduction in footfall caused by the pandemic. Think of industries and sectors that rely upon footfall, retail, hospitality, uh, culture, uh, leisure. And so there's those sectors which normally contribute hugely to our country's uh, coffers, uh, uh, wealth and prosperity, have really struggled. And the concern is the combination 
of uh, a continuation of this pandemic. Uh, yes, there is great news with the vaccine, but a combination of uh, COVID plus uh, a Brexit uh, with no deal or a poor deal would be uh, really severe for London and our country. As you said, it is a perfect storm, a double whammy. And that's why it's so important that our government wakes up and realises what we're heading towards rather than sleepwalking into a potentially really deep recession. What's the right way of doing it? Is it more funds given to London? And how much of these shifts will actually be permanent? How much will the hospitality business suffer longer term? I think what the government's got to realise is many of these sectors uh, are in life support and they need to stay in life support because what we can't afford is for these businesses to go bust. It's far, far easier to keep a business viable with financial support from the government than allowing a business to go bust and hoping that people restart businesses. Similarly, it's far easier to keep people in work with financial support from the central government rather than them losing their jobs. Our current estimate is if the government continues, if the government continues down this line, we could see uh, levels of job losses, uh, levels of uh, businesses going bust. We've not seen as a country or a city since the 1980s. Nobody wants that. And that's why we're lobbying the government to do much more, in particular, to help those sectors like retail, hospitality and culture that have really suffered and normally in good times contribute hugely towards our wealth and prosperity. When you look at the world-famous theatre industry in London, will it ever come back to normal? If we have a vaccine and that goes to plan, and if government support stays at these levels, when are you expecting tourism to come back? Yeah, well, the, the good news and the, the light at the end of the tunnel is the vaccine. Uh, this week, uh, Londoners and people across our country will start receiving the vaccine. Uh, and uh, the government has done the right thing and ordered vaccines from a number of different companies. The combination of the vaccine, but also we're now starting mass testing of those who are asymptomatic, uh, leads us to have hope uh, towards the new year. And that's why it's really important the government gives the uh, support. Uh, most businesses are planning next year not to be as good as 2019, but they want to stay open and uh, viable. We're hoping to see tourists return to our city uh, next summer. It's really important they do so and safely and that's why it's really important that the government continues to make progress on the vaccine on mass testing but also we need to really get on top of the test trace isolate system it's really important if somebody has the virus particularly if they're asymptomatic that they know they've got the virus they can isolate to stop the virus being passed on we've learned a lot over the last eight nine months we've got to use those lessons going forward to make sure we can have a swift recovery which is really important for our country's well-being how much of it is a risk that actually London goes to tier three? And this is a tiering system that, you know, all living in the UK will be familiar with. But will you fight to keep it in tier two, which is a medium lockdown? Well, the, the tiering system isn't perfect across our country. For those of you viewers outside of the UK, we have three tiers. Tier one is uh, uh, with the least restrictions and tier three is with the most restrictions. London currently is in tier two. We are concerned. Uh, that there could be an increase uh, in the spread of the virus, a surge, because of a relaxation of the rules during Christmas. And that's why it's really important that anybody who is in London or visits London follows our rules. When you're using public transport, you're in a shop, wear a face mask. When you're in a place where you can't keep your social distance, wear a face mask. Uh, you know, it's really important you carry hand sanitizer, wash your hands regularly and thoroughly, follow the rules. That will avoid London going into tier three, because tier three, because of the additional restrictions, would mean that a lot of the 
progress we've made with our businesses like here in the Cuddy Sark would be undone. That's why it's really important that people follow the rules to avoid us either entering tier three or even worse, our country potentially entering a third national lockdown. Sadiq Khan, thank you so much for your time today. Of course, that is the mayor of London from the world famous Cuddy Sark. Steve Chevron joins us now, Federated Hermes Portfolio Manager. Steve, 7.05 Eastern time has become like therapy for investors and our audience after rattling through all the negative news. And I think that's been a job of the investor for the market participants to almost receive that therapy. All this stuff going on around us, which is absolutely dreadful, and thinking about a better 2021. Have you had the therapy, Steve? Yeah, I, I think I do. I, mean, I, think, I, I think we've been pretty calm through the last few months. Look, I mean, what you've seen in terms of a recovery is shocking. I mean, in terms of the number of people that have gone back to work, in terms of the rebound in retail sales, manufacturing, housing, I mean, you really do have in a lot of sectors of the economy a V-shaped recovery with a lot of stimulus coming, not just the fiscal stimulus, not just probably a little bit more from the Fed in terms of extending duration and things of that nature, but the vaccine itself represents an enormous stimulus over the course of next year as we gradually get back to normal. And I think that's what the market is looking through. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need support for certain parts of the economy that are really in for it right now with these increased restrictions. But that's really about doing the right thing for sectors of the economy. The market as a whole, I think, is, is in a much healthier place than certain sectors are. Steve, I get this argument that we're pricing in 2021 and that we're looking toward a period past the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yet, if we've already priced that in, what more can we price in to drive the market higher? Well, well Lisa, I, I don't think we are just pricing in 2021. And I, I think it's a longer term runway of growth. Remember, outside of 1980, 1981, there are no real examples of double dip recessions since the Great Depression. When you're looking at recoveries and expansions, these last three, four, five, six years, sometimes as many as 10 years, and we just had a recession. We've cleared the deck. We're in early cycles. So, yes, the market's immediate focus is on the recovery in 2021. But in reality, you have to start pricing in the idea that we've got a number of years of first recovery, then expansion, and markets are going to respond well to that. Lisa, Tom and I have been going through the same story, Steve, over the last several mm -hmm. weeks. And I've sat here frustrated, sometimes bored at the outlook because it's very <laughs> samey. And I'm wondering whether yeah. the group think has actually become group action. Are you worried about actual crowding or as far as you're concerned, the money hasn't actually been put to work? This is just talk still. Look, I think this is this is what the scary part about the early part of a cycle, because you'll see big percentage moves and think that you've missed the whole thing. But let's put it in a perspective. Right. Small caps have outperformed large by, let's call it, you know, 10 to 15 percent since September. But they've underperformed for the last five years. They were flat for the last two years. Um, even if you look at value versus growth, the 10 to 15 percent outperformance you've seen there. Value underperformed by 50% in the first half of this year. And so we think it's really those uncomfortable trades around value, around small caps, around international, which has started to show signs of life, and around dividend payers that are really going to continue over the course of the next year. Uh, we think that they're still relatively early in their, in their days. And we think, again, while the market has priced in a better 21, we don't yeah. think that the market has priced in you know, a longer-term growth trajectory.
Steve, this idea of being early, early is a word we hear so many times and this idea of it being uncomfortable and it being uncomfortable to get in in the early part of a bull market. And I think April was uncomfortable. Right Mm -hmm. now, can you call it early when we've got a record high on the Russell, a record high on the S&P 500 and a record high on the Nasdaq? I mean, just looking at recoveries, you're a student of market history much more than I am, Steve. You know, Mm -hmm. when we start an early stage recovery, do we start at record highs? We don't get there this quickly, um, but you can. So, for example, if you think about the decline in 1987, you were back to all-time highs within about a year of that 35% decline. And and I can assure you, you didn't want to sell in 1998 because you you still had a market bull run until 2000 almost. Um, Yes, this can happen. Even if you look back at the last recession that we went through, right? you got back to the all-time high in 2013. Again, it would have been very easy to say, well, okay, we're back to the all-time high. We're long in the two. Yet another, yet another six years after that. So, yep. no, I, I don't think it means that we're late just because we're at all-time highs. I think it's, it's just the nature of this recovery and the amount of stimulus that we got that allowed us to get back to the highs so quickly. I was reading uh, Morgan Stanley's look ahead yesterday. Andrew Sheets came out and he said that one reason for their bullish outlook is that they expect fiscal and monetary policy to work together, yet they still expect the 10-year yield to get up to 1.45% by year Mm -hmm. end. How high can that yield go before it derails the equity rally? Look, I, I I think it's a function of what the economic context is, right? So if you're still in an economic malaise or you have slowing economic data, and you get a surge in yields because there's expectations that the Fed won't be as dovish, then obviously that, that, that's something that's bad. Um, if, on the other hand, you know we're getting higher yields on the back of stronger and stronger economic data, more and more people going back to work, more normal levels of activity, I think that's, that's fine. Um, right now, both the yield and the spreads are so low and so tight that it suggests that equity multiples could be in the mid to high 20s. We don't need them to stay that high. So there is some room, I think, within a healthy economic recovery for yields to rise and the market to be okay with that. Steve, great to catch up. Is it too early to say happy Christmas, just in case we don't see each other? Enjoy the holidays. This year, take the opportunity, my friend. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Enjoy the holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Steve Chevron of Federated Hermes. Thank you, sir. Let's get to this brutal pandemic sweeping across the United States of America. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Mercedes Carnathan, Northwestern University Department of Preventative Medicine Vice Chair. Mercedes, Professor, fantastic to get you back on the programme with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank Secretary you. Azar over the weekend saying that perhaps by Q2, all Americans that would like the vaccine would have access to the vaccine. Is this the timeline that you're putting into your models, you're thinking about increasingly as well? You know, that is what I have heard as well, that hopefully by April, availability of the vaccine will be such and production of the vaccine will be such that everybody who wants it will start to be introduced to the opportunity to get it. Because you have to keep in mind, it's two factors. It's how many doses of the vaccine do we have available and how can we get it out to the people rapidly? So let's talk about the process of getting it out. We know that first responders, people in nursing homes, uh, those are some of the first recipients or likely recipients of the vaccine. Where do we go from there? You know, I think it's really important to remember that those two populations are coming first. So what that really means in Q1 is that our behaviors can't change. If you think about it, those are not the individuals with the highest 
uh, likelihood of circulating the virus in the population or spreading it. Nursing home residents are in nursing homes. They're not out there. It's the 20 to 39-year-olds who are not being vaccinated early on who are spreading it. So what it means is that for the long game, we're looking pretty good once we can get this rolled out. But for right now, our behaviors can't change. So Mercedes, this is the question, right? I mean, how should it be rolled out in order to prevent the deaths that are inevitable, that are climbing, that we're seeing record hospitalizations currently? How do we best distribute in order to prevent the rampant spread as many people are predicting? You know, what I'd like to see, I've heard some discussion about essential workers who are delivery drivers, who are uh, front-facing people in stores being eligible early on for the vaccine. And that would solve two problems. For, uh, for a large proportion of those workers, those individuals, um, their income isn't as high. They aren't able to socially isolate themselves. Uh, they don't have vast homes to be able to spread out. And those populations are often at highest risk for the most severe outcomes and hospitalizations. So it would be ideal to see that population in the next round. The good news, Professor, is we've had months to think about this, how to roll it out. What I still don't know, and maybe you can help me, is how long does this last before we have to go back again and get another shot? get another vaccination. So as I understand it with Pfizer, you get one shot, 21 days later or so, you get another shot. What is your immunity like after that? How long are the antibodies there for? Professor, do we know the answers to that? If I had the answer to that, I would be making a lot of money. I think right now we still are in the position where we know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. And so I am not sure about that answer, how long one will remain immune. I think, you know, that information stands to come out at the time when they actually publish their trial results. Right now they're getting emergency use authorization. We haven't seen the final reports and hopefully there'll be some hints in there. Are you a little worried about the duration that it might be? Do you have a range in mind, Professor? I apologise for putting you on the spot because there is a belief at the moment and we all share this hope that by the middle of next year, in places across the world, around the planet, we've got society to a position where we can roll back many of these restrictions. But I think a big worry for people would be if we had to go and do this all over again, quarter after quarter, to make sure this lasts. That would be a much bigger effort. Do you have a time range in mind? That would be a much bigger effort. Um, you know, I think what I remain hopeful is that this particular vaccine, which I hear is a unique approach to vaccination and how it's targeting the virus, that it will not be like the flu vaccine that wrap. So the flu, the, the flu virus um, mutates quickly. The coronavirus doesn't mutate quite as well, I think, as the flu va- uh, virus. However, and the way that these vaccines have been developed, there's something that is targeting something a little more central to the virus so that ideally this will last longer than one year. However, I haven't seen the final reports yet. Mercedes, I just want to wrap up with where we are in the pandemic right now. We are seeing record numbers of cases in the United States. We're seeing hospitalizations. We're seeing ICU units at capacity. How concerned are you about the next month in terms of the worst aspect of this pandemic? You know, the worst aspect of this is, you know, you can always build field hospitals, but how are you going to staff them? As we are filling up the hospitals and ICUs and using up the life-saving equipment, we need people to run that equipment. And that's where we're actually running short right now. So that concerns me a great deal. Our healthcare providers are burnt out. They are exhausted. This is emotionally and physically very draining. So it's very concerning. And the only, the best thing that we can do 
is to adhere to mask wearing and social distancing so that we can try to tamp this down. Professor, we appreciate your hard work and your contribution to this program. Thank you. Mercedes Carnathan of Northwestern University. You and I have both said the same thing. We make the mistake of calling it stimulus. What this really is is aid. It's an aid package to get us to the end of Q2. The stimulus, that's something you've got to think about after that. I'm really curious to see the details of the plan. We're going to be getting it today, but I'm curious to see whether there are going to be any direct payments to individuals. The word is there won't be. How they get that aid out to small businesses, the details matter, John, especially as the pandemic is getting worse. And will we get that $160 billion in state and local aid? Tina Fordham joins us now, Avonhurst Head of Global Political Strategy. Tina, let's just start with your read on negotiations down on Capitol Hill. It certainly sounds a lot more constructive over the last week or so. What's your take, Tina? Um, Well, I always get worried when it starts to sound constructive because part of that, you know, signal that talks are going well uh, is in itself um, just a, a, a reflects the, the political imperative for both sides to be seen to be working in the country's best interest during this time of crisis. You know, everyone uses the same expression, the devil in the details. I think um, the observation about this being aid rather than stimulus is a very astute one because we forget how toxic um, the term fiscal stimulus can be in the U.S. context. So I am uh, less optimistic, actually, now than I was the last time, uh, but then I was wrong. So um, I think that it's in the it's going to be in Republican interest to be seen to be driving a very hard bargain, especially as we have this signpost of January 5th, the Georgia runoffs coming. So what's the main opposition here? Is it still the state and local funding? Is that going to be the main sticking point? I think that there is room for for compromise, uh, but that Republicans will be wanting to be seen to be driving the harder bargain. And one of the new twists that we've uh, we've experienced since the presidential elections is Republicans finding religion again on on deficit spending. Right. So or the size of the deficit. So um, they are not going to be want to be giving in to Democrats. And that's why I worry that markets are getting ahead of the politics on this one, because we haven't had uh, a um, lame duck session quite as contentious as this one is likely to be. And I worry that the scorched earth tendencies um, that we've seen thus far might uh, actually bleed into the stimulus discussions. I'm struggling to see where you, the deficit hawks are coming back into play here. I mean, even Mitch McConnell, he did propose a skinny bill. He did, uh, there was talk about him signing on to the bipartisan agreement once the details were hashed out. President Trump seems amenable, open to the idea of signing off. Who are the deficit hawks? Listen, I think that we've seen a different tone in Congress. Um, I'm here in London talking to you about global macro. Um, I think that the political imperative to get a stimulus deal done was there um, it, it, you know, before the elections and was calling it for then. I'm worried that a contentious, um, particularly contentious and polarized mood where we even haven't even got people willing to recognize the results of the presidential elections in the House huh. gives a lot of wiggle room to to say that, you know, we we want to do the right thing for the country, but we just can't get there. Tina, you've mentioned the importance of language, that it's aid, not stimulus, because that word is toxic in parts of the country and parts of the politics of the United States of America. When you start to hear the word state aid, 
to another person, that's just a bailout of poorly ran states. And we've heard that so many times from the administration. I heard it from them directly on Friday. Now, Tina, I'm wondering from your perspective, is there any way that they can offer aid to states without that being considered a state bailout of what many Republicans and the electorate might consider to be poorly run states? Well, to me, this is all code. You know, I'm an American who's been living outside my country for over 20 years. Uh, there didn't used to be this debate about which states were run well by, you know, by, yep. by governors of, of which side. So I'm really worried that we're even normalizing this discussion. This is the biggest crisis in decades in terms of its impact on lives and livelihoods. And to suggest that it's in any way rational or reasonable to do anything other than pass a stimulus right now, I, I think doesn't put the, you know, the economic interests of the country uh, at heart, which is why I was saying what I did about um, the, the return of fiscal discipline and frankly, finding pretext to avoid doing what needs to be done. United States <laughs> in a crisis where people are losing their lives shouldn't be differentiated between poorly run states and well-run states that just happen to be led by a, a leader of a particular political stripe. So to me, this is a, a, a pretext to not do what needs to be done, what every economist, central bankers, uh, you know, have all agreed upon. This is getting held up in Congress. Well, I think, Tina, I would go one step further. I think what totally exposes the intellectual inconsistency and the dishonesty in some parts of the debate is that those very same people who are unwilling to offer aid to what they consider to be poorly run states are also considering offering aid to airlines, which many people on Wall Street would consider to be poorly run airlines in the context that they had no cash when it hit the fan. Yes, poorly run enterprises, shrinking enterprises, even dying enterprises. Uh, absolutely. So I guess I, I, I think you might have struck a nerve. I, I'm just um, not not willing to use the, the current terms to, to have this debate. The stimulus should be passed um, in Europe, where I am. Um, gov governments composed of, of many uh, political parties are, are, are finding common cause. And we're seeing these things passed so that people can move on um, with their lives. And we have a few more months to go. Now, what really worries me about what's happening in the United States is we have, in some ways, the worst of all worlds. We haven't even had, you know, kind of fully fledged lockdowns. They've been partial and they've been late. A vaccine, um, you know, miraculously, or, or rather thanks to the hard work of scientists and, and epidemiologists, is, is coming. But we have many months to go before that rollout. And markets are very buoyant um, on the, you know, the amazing news that vaccine is coming. But we could have many months delay, which is why I worry about what I call vax populi at risk. The combination of weak state capacity, as in country, not individual U.S. states, but weak state capacity yeah. combined with anti-vax sentiment uh, and, you know, compounded by these kinds of delays and the stimulus that's necessary could really make things pretty problematic in the coming months. Some challenges still to come in the near term, that's for sure. Tina, thank you. Thank you for your time this morning. Tina Fordham there of Avonhurst. Mm -hmm. Return to normal. What does normal even look like? Let's bring in Dan Arn, BNP Paribas Chief US Economist and Head of Macro Strategy. Dan, we keep hearing that. Vaccinations coming back after 21. It's about the return to normal. What's normal in the conversations that you have? What does normal sound like in the back half of 21? 
Yeah, normal, uh, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, normal uh, probably means uh, um, a growth uh, range uh, a lot closer to, to long-term potential uh, in the you know, two to two and a half, uh, uh, maybe one and a half range, uh, uh, but not the eye-poppingly large uh, uh, double-digit annualized, you know, 30 plus and 30 minus uh, type growth that we've seen before. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, uh, beyond just the simple numbers, though, it's a real question as to uh, not so much what happens to, to demand. Um, you know, we think that uh, um, a lot of uh, demand will, uh, will uh, try and, and renormalize. Um, but where are the areas where, um, where supply is going to have to adjust to a new reality that demand is never going to come back? And we were just hearing about, uh, um, about uh, people's uh, uh, locational preferences. Uh, um, does this mean that uh, demand for high-end luxury condos uh, in Manhattan is going to change? Does this mean that uh, people's business travel is going to change? Does this mean uh, not just a, a fall in demand, but does this mean that demand for digital services um, is going to be at a new permanent high. Um, a lot of companies are going to have to adjust to this. And uh, um, while this is opportunities for some, these are challenges for a lot of others. And it raises a question about inflation. How do you measure inflation in a fundamentally changing economy uh, into one that is more dominant, dominated by tech? What do you see in terms of inflation picking up and how should we be measuring it? Yeah, well, uh, the classic ways uh, to try and assess where inflation is going is, of course, uh, looking at uh, um, uh, the measurement uh, of output slack in the economy. And uh, we actually just released um, our latest global uh, outlook um, where we see uh, 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 technical measures of slack in the economy um, uh, uh, close uh, by the end of uh, 2022. Um, so we do actually um, see... Uh, a bit higher inflation uh, coming, um, uh, putting aside denomination effects uh, uh, starting in uh, uh, late 2022, uh, early 2023. Um, but really, is how uh, widespread is this going to be? Is this going to be a general uh, move higher inflation across uh, the overall economy, or are we going to see parts of the economy still in the doldrums while uh, others are red hot due to, you know, more more demand. I think that's going to be, um, and, and is that going to translate into higher wage pressure uh, more generally or, again, just in a few uh, segments of the labor market? Um, I think that's um, a big question that actually the new administration will be asking themselves. And it's also really hard to even imagine if you think about some of the fiscal support plans and the checks that have been sent out to individuals. I mean, if the government were to engage in another round of helicopter money, essentially, would that change, fundamentally change your view on inflation in the United States? No, I don't think it will fundamentally change it, um, but I do think it will uh, certainly ward off some of the risk uh, that we could fall uh, into a deflationary trap. Uh, I think inflationary expectations, at least as you measure them by, you know, by market uh, break-evens, uh, they're kind of teetering uh, uh, on the edge of potentially uh, 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 moving lower um, if uh, um, this does look like there's going to be lasting scars in the economy. And so the, you know, the big recovery and break-evens that we've seen in the last couple of months uh, is, I think, out of hope that uh, uh, the scars will be less damaging as the vaccine is around the corner. Yeah. Um, but the question is, uh, uh, can there be enough fiscal support to, to tide us through this transition uh, um, until the vaccine arrives uh, uh, in a way that will continue to support inflationary expectations in the future? Um, so I think uh, uh, that's probably the most 
important way in which uh, just this uh, immediate fiscal support can nevertheless have long-term impacts upon the economy. Well, Dan, let's make it really simple uh, and just wrap up with this. And I think this is why the 250,000, that kind of number in payrolls like we got last week is so important. How many jobs do we need to actually generate to actually fill the gap of the last nine months, Dan? And how long would it take at a rate of 250K to get it done? Yeah, we're talking about uh, uh, you know, millions of jobs are still uh, displaced. Uh, now, it's a big open question how much of those uh, are going to be permanently sure. lost uh, and how much of them you know, should be permanently lost. Uh, I think that's going to be the real uh, the sticking point here. Uh, uh, you know, there's no question that some kinds of jobs are going to have to go away. Um, uh, the more uh, the new normal, as you said, or the post-pandemic normal looks different from uh, the pre-pandemic norm. Uh, but are those necessarily have to go away um, because the new uh, as supply adjusts to the new reality, um, or are they unnecessarily caused? Um, uh, you know, be- because of you know bankruptcies or liquidity uh, events or, or things like that. Uh, um, uh, that's, uh, uh, I'm sure, going to be in the minds of uh, um, not just, again, administration officials, but also Congress uh, um, as they consider um, uh, debating this, uh, this new um, uh, stimulus package. Dan, great to catch up, sir. As always, my best to you and the team. Dan Art at BNP Paribas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.